Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is uh, Revelation 2, verses 18 through uh, 29, the section to the church at Thyatira. You'll find that on page 1915 of your Blue Pew Bibles. So starting at verse 18, to the church in Thyatira. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So, I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely until they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. A couple weeks ago, wow, there it went. <laughs> a couple weeks ago, I was walking early in the morning in the neighborhood around our house, and, and as I often do, I, I greet the people I pass in the morning, and normally it's a, a good morning, and the response back, good morning, and, and the polite smile as we, we pass each other. And I, I passed one guy who, his response to me when I said good morning, he goes, it is. <laughs> kind of looked at him and, and kept going. It, it's not the first time I've had somebody say something like that that, that catches me off guard and, and makes me stop and rethink how I'm, I'm engaging things. I, I had a, a teacher in high school who, who, if you called him up, he would say, talk at me. That was his first response. And, and, and he was a speech teacher, and so we get in a discussion with him about it, and he says, you can't talk with me because that implies we're both talking and no one's going to hear each other. So just talk at me. And he was very particular about that preposition. You had to talk at him. Uh, and other teachers didn't quite like it when you talked at them. They saw some disrespect in that. But, but he was particular with that. One of my pastors, uh, a mentor for me along the way, was, was Dante Venegas. Uh, and Dante uh, was from Puerto Rico and, and then lived in, uh, in New York for a while and ended up as a minister, ordained minister, uh, in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And, 
And while there, I, I got to know Dante well, and, and he often spoke some pretty strong words into my life in, in good ways that encouraged me in my sense of calling. One of the times I, I called Pastor Dante up and, and I needed to talk to him about some program stuff at, at the church and, and who was going to be coordinating what. And I, I call him up and he answers the phone, I believe God! I wasn't quite sure how to respond to that. <laughs> so I said, do you mean you believe in God, Pastor Dante? He goes, well, that too, but I believe God. And, and the program stuff got left to the side because I was really curious about why he would say it that way. I believe God. That's how he answered the phone. And so we were talking. He says, no, this is the foundation of life. I believe God. I believe God. I'm not, not just in God, not just in the idea of God, not just that God exists out there somewhere. I actually believe God. I take God at his word. And there was a communication of foundational trust for Dante. And I found out he did this to other people too. It wasn't just me. But when he'd answer the phone quite often, he would just start with, I believe God. And, and as you talk to him about it, that really was for him the foundation of everything. Every relationship, every interaction was rooted in this sense that he believed God. And that made the difference for him. We're going to enter into a story today with, with the church at Thyatira that's, that's asking or, or is struggling with this very thing. Do they believe God? Do they take God at his word? Or, or are they still caught up in worry and fear and a, a, a need for security, a, a need to try and control their environment and make sure that, that there's no disturbances around them? They want things be nice and stable. They want things to make sense. They want to be in control. And the struggle that comes out here is, do they trust God? Will they, will they really trust God to take care of them? A few things by way of background to help us get into the context here. Thyatira was built on a plain unlike most of the cities at that time that were built either on a hilltop or a mountaintop or, or some space where they could easily defend the city, Thyatira was built in a plain with a few gentle rolling hills around it. They could see their enemies coming, but they really had no de natural defenses to stop their enemies from coming towards them. In fact, when you read the history of this city, it was run over by, by opposing armies and military groups multiple times. So a group would come in and take control of the city, and a few years later, another group would come in from the other side. And then, and then someone from the north and someone from the south, it seemed like their city was never experiencing a long-term stability to it. There was always something happening to undo it. One of the ways they began to defend themselves was to become a, a city that had what we would today call trade unions. They were trade guilds. And, and it was groups that got together around certain professions usually and, and they defended themselves and they became a community of protection. And, and you can actually see in some of the excavation, they haven't been able to do a whole lot in the city, but in some of it, they had neighborhoods that were defined by these trade guilds. 
this was the one guild, the other guild was over here, and they, they kind of divided the city that way, but it also became a way of protection and a way of communal life, so much so that the religious life was often associated by what trade guild you belonged to. And the city developed and began to gain some stability, not because they had military powers, not because they had political alliances, but because they, as the people, got together and formed these trade guilds as a way of protection and as a way of being community together. You belong to a trade guild. Your family belonged to a trade guild. That was who you associated with. And so their protection was with each other in smaller community inside the city. Along that lines, they also developed a, a kind of a multicultural setting there. Thyatira is one of the cities that was known for being very culturally and racially diverse. It wasn't aligned just as a Roman city. It, it, was, it was people from all over the place had settled there. And, and the, some of the commentators figure that this probably happened because of all the different groups that were always coming in and going through it. And, and eventually that city was settled by people from all sorts of different races and cultural backgrounds, which also meant that they brought in all their gods and all their religious differences with them. And so you have a city that has been exposed and vulnerable, that's finding a way to define itself and they decide to, to the, way, the best way to survive as a city and to be stable is to have this sense of, of we belong to each other in these guilds, but we are also multicultural. And so it is a city that learned to tolerate each other and make room for each other. One of the ways they did this was uniquely to this city, their coins often had representations of one guild or one god on one side and another guild or another god on the other side. And so even their coins, rather than being defined to the god of this city, like multiple other cities had, they had multiple gods and multiple guilds represented on their coins to show that the strength of the city was in their diversity. Starting to sound familiar to anybody? starts sounding kind of like the Canadian context. We have this idea that of tolerance and of, of developing a country and a community where our strength is going to be found in our diversity with each other. Along with this is what's called syncretism. And syncretism is a technical kind of theological and social cultural uh, term and it's used to describe how you take one culture and especially one religion, and you meld it with another one. So you have some elements of one thing and some elements of the other, and, and you kind of make a new third thing out of it that, that's a little bit this and a little bit that. And it was common in this city in particular as they brought things together to, to not define yourself so strictly as, well, I follow this God, but to say, yeah, I, I've got a little bit of this God and a little bit of that God. I go to that temple on Thursdays. I go to that one on Mondays. It's that type of thing. It, it was drawing in from these multiple traditions to make a new tradition together, kind of eclectic that way. And the last thing, the greatest value in this city was social and economic stability. I mean, they didn't use the term middle class, but they wanted a stable middle class. They wanted everybody to have a good, decent life, 
not to have much poor and not to have the really rich, but to have this kind of level playing ground and everybody to be able to have enough. That is this city. It's, it's design and its structure and its view on how we are going to survive is to be at peace with as many people as we can and to make room for everybody to be part of this city. So the last thing you want is a group of people who rock the boat. A group of people who make exclusive claims about their God. You see how an environment like that that values tolerance all of a sudden becomes a threat to a Christian community that says we believe that Jesus Christ is the only Son of God? It becomes difficult. It becomes uncomfortable because, whoa, you Christians, you got to get with the program. Just accept what's happening around you. Just be part of the community. Don't stand out. The last thing you want to do is stand out. Another thing we need to understand is this phrase, tolerating Jezebel. And with some of the other letters, we have an idea more specifically of, of where the problem was, who it was in the city, or what group of people that were leading God's people astray. But with Thyatira, we don't really know the historical context. We don't have any documents to show us. There wasn't a large conflict between Jews and Christians in this city. But we get this phrase, you tolerate Jezebel. Jezebel is a biblical character. Some of us may remember faintly who Jezebel was, but let me give a bit of background on Jezebel. Jezebel was was the queen of Israel for a long time, during the time that Elijah was the main prophet. There were other prophets at that time too, but Elijah was the main prophet. And Jezebel uh, was a queen who, who married King Ahab, and Ahab was the rightful king, but he married, he married Jezebel, who was the daughter of a foreign king. And that's really important in Israel's history. When you hear that the queen is the daughter of a foreign king, you start to recognize something is off in the king's heart. The king has desires and the king is leaning away from God and there's going to be trouble that follows. And this queen who comes in from the foreign king in the foreign kingdom brings with her Baal worship. What did she do? She urged Ahab to do evil in God's sight. That's how she's described in, in the book of Second Kings, that she urged her husband to do evil in God's sight. She wasn't a passive player. She was very active, so much so that she went around looking for ways to kill the Lord's prophets. So it wasn't just, I'm going to bring this other religion in alongside of, of God's people. It was, I'm going to get rid of God's prophets. And she actively went out to kill them, so much so that Obadiah, one of the, the servants of, of the king, spent his time trying to hide in different caves around Israel the prophets of God that he could find. And he spent years doing this, of trying to keep them safe and provide for them so that the queen would not be able to kill all of God's prophets. She also, at her table, kings and queens would, would host these big banquet tables and at their table, she would sponsor, means kind of provide for and take care of, 50 different prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. That was the daily ritual. 450 prophets to these gods who are from outside of Israel, 
450 of them ate at her table every day gives you a sense of how she was stacking the deck in Israel against God's people. She was doing things, saying, it's okay for these people to be here. In fact, it's good for them to be here. In fact, I'm going to provide for them. Out of the resources that God has given us, they are going to be provided for. They have a place at this table. More than that, she on multiple occasions threatens to kill Elijah. The most famous is after Elijah puts to death all 450 of her prophets. Uh, It is a huge conflict, and, and she goes after Elijah specifically, calling down curses on him and on herself if she doesn't kill him by the end of that day. She also, and this is probably the most egregious story of her involvement, King Ahab wanted the vineyard that belonged to Naboth. Naboth was was a humble man, no big deal in the society, but he had the vineyard that was known for producing the best wine in the country. And Ahab wanted that vineyard for himself, and he tried buying it off of Naboth. And Naboth said no to him because this is a covenantal property that has lived in my family and been given down. This is the land God gave my family. I can't sell it. That would not be right. And Ahab went back home and pouted. And Jezebel said, who are you? Aren't you the king? Go and take it. And because Ahab refused to go and take it, she went and she got the city councilors to plot against Naboth and to tell lies about Naboth, that he had blasphemed God. And then they took Naboth out of the city and stoned him to death. And then once she had gotten word that Naboth was dead, then she told Ahab to go back to the vineyard and take it for himself because Naboth was dead. She promoted evil throughout Israel. She disregarded God's ways consistently. And she constantly made room for others to come in. The end of her life is also told. And it comes with this accusation that she practiced or facilitated, there's some debate on what that means, but she practiced idolatry and witchcraft. Along with all these other offenses, she was practicing idolatry and witchcraft, which means she was using all these other things and means of trying to control the world around her, trying to be the one who's always in control. And, and with that, it says, she, she, the story, and it's kind of a gruesome story, so I won't tell it all right now, but in telling the story of when she actually died, she saw the person who had, who had resulted in her husband's death and who has now come after her son. And she saw him coming up to the castle and she goes inside and she puts up on eye makeup and she does up her hair. And she looks out a window and says, Zimri, what do you want with me? As if she can somehow make peace with this man who has been sent to kill her that she can manipulate this situation too. Now some people have taken this passage out of context and said that's why women should never wear makeup and do up their hair. That is totally out of context. (laughs) But what she's doing in this passage, she's taking the posture of a seductress. And scripture's pointing out that she's living the life essentially of a prostitute and she's prostituting Israel with other gods. And so when we get into our text today, 
and we hear God saying, Jesus saying to the people, uh, his people in Thyatira, there is a Jezebel among you and you're letting her be there. God is saying to them and saying to us, be on guard. Be on guard at who you allow into your midst to tell you that it's okay to follow other gods. To tell you that it's okay to find your security outside of me. To tell you that, that if you just know the right formulas and the right secrets, the secret knowledge, that you're going to be able to control things. That you can dabble in church on Sunday. And on Monday, that you can go around and, and dabble in the horoscope and the fortune tellers. That you can go and, and have your palms read by palm readers. And, and you, can, you can play with all the mystical stuff in the world because that just might be true too. And he's calling it out and saying, no, I will not tolerate having a Jezebel among my people. And the thing with Jezebel is that she's declared herself to be a prophet which ties us back into this story again of, of how Jezebel engaged with God's people, that she brought in all sorts of foreign teachings that were not tied to Scripture and that were not tied to worshiping God. She allowed all of them to come in and to, to be part of the community of God's people. And it calls us to be in a posture today. Where is the Jezebel? Where are those messages that we as God's people are like, yeah, no big deal. Where are those things that, that we know better and we go, yeah, that's all right. It's not that big of a sin. It's not too big. It's a small thing. It, it, it's okay. It calls us to be in this posture, this posture of, of discernment, to take our faith seriously and not haphazardly, to be a people who... who root ourselves in God's word again and again and again so that we're prepared to hear these messages, to be a people who are distinct from the world around us. That theme's come up in multiple of these letters, hasn't it? That, that God's people are, are unlike, are, are so similar to everybody else around them that there's no visible difference between them and the people around them. That James passage that we read earlier talked about putting God's word into practice. And if you read a little further in James, it, it, James says, you believe in God? Good, so do demons. They believe in God. They don't trust him. And they don't follow him. And their lives don't reflect the life of God. There's a challenge there. It's not just about words. It's not just about showing up on Sunday. It's not just about standing up and saying the confession that the church has said through the centuries. It's about becoming God's people and living in such a way that we are distinct from the world around us because we follow God. This is what Jesus started the letter off with, though. Now that we know a bit of the context and the challenge they were facing. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. If you read the first three letters that we've read, Jesus is calling people, the other churches out either for their deeds or their lack of love 
or their lack of faith or he's calling them out because they haven't persevered and they want to, they've grown weary. And here he's saying, you got it all together. You're doing the things that you should be doing. There's a voice in you tempting you not to. There's a voice among you that you've been tolerating. But overall, you're doing what you should be doing. And you believe, which is good. And I read this and I almost want to say, and I kind of feel like they probably said when they read that line, what more do you want from us, Jesus? What more do you want from us? If we're doing all these things, what are we missing? What's not happening? The description of Jesus is helpful here. It says, Jesus had eyes, is the one whose eyes are like blazing fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. The blazing fire image that comes up multiple times in scripture is used as a refining fire. That God is one who comes in to purify things, to get rid of every impure element outside of it. And so we need to think here as we we read this context of what Jesus is doing uh, with them. He's going after the last bits of impurity in this community. He's saying, I want to refine you. I want to I get at the core of what's, what's distorting the purity in you. I, I'm going after the heart of things here. And that burnished bronze, it's a unique word, and there's tons of debate around it. It's fascinating how many articles can be written around one word in the Greek language, trying to understand what it is. We don't know fully what it is, but what we do know from the historical record around this word is that the metal that was purified in this city that we translate as burnished bronze was a really high quality. In fact, it had a higher quality. It was more refined than the imperial money that was used in the, in the Roman coins. So it wasn't a cheap metal. It was a metal that had been refined and refined and refined to get to a purified state. And Jesus is presenting himself to the people as as being the refining fire and and being the one who is pure, who the, the impurities have been driven out of. And he's saying, this is who I am. This is who I am. I am the one who refines. I am the one who provides. I am the one who who drives out anything that is impure. So what's he after? Remember, this city is one that wants stability. It wants nobody to rock the boat. It wants room for everybody. And that tolerance and that stability in there has made room for idolatry and witchcraft to be part of this city's practices, including some within the church. And Jesus is saying, he's essentially saying, where are you putting your trust? Your practices, your way of engaging the world is all about control. And so if we, we back up a minute, when he says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first, but you're also doing these other things to try and control your environment, he's saying, are you just trying to control me? Are you just treating me as you treat all the other gods, as someone that you have to appease? someone that you're fearful of, someone that you're trying to control and manipulate, are you trying to manipulate me like you're trying to manipulate the other gods? Am I just your genie in the lamp? What Jesus is really after is their affections, 
and their trust. You know, at Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer, number one, we often start out with, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And in our culture today, comfort is a feel-good word. It's a word that, that's meant to say, I'm, I'm wrapped up, I'm secure, I'm, I'm liked. <laughs> it's a sense of, of being at peace personally. But comfort has a, has a deeper meaning to it that this is my only provision. This is the one I trust. What is my only trust in life and in death? What is the only thing I believe in life and in death? I believe my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Do it like Pastor Dante and take out that word in. I believe my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I belong to him wholly, not just part of me, not just on Sundays, but, but every aspect of my life belongs to him. I'm wrapped up in him. And Jesus is saying, do you trust only me? Are you willing to trust only me to provide for you? Are you willing to trust only me to take care of you, to be your protector, to give you the stability that you long for, that security that you feel like is missing in your life? When you feel all those threats coming in, whether they're economic, whether they're military or political, whether they're social, whatever those threats are, do you trust me to be the one who takes care of you in the midst of all of that uncertainty? Are you willing to trust me? After Jesus confronts the existence of Jezebel and this trust of other gods that's in their midst, he says this, I'm not going to impose any other burden on you. I'm not going to tell you to go do more works. I'm not going to tell you to go love your neighbor you don't want to love. I'm not going to tell you to dig deeper into the faith. I'm just going to tell you this, hold on to what you already have. Hold on to that. And the image of hold on to that is, is for us and we need to see it as, as a father who's picking up their child and, and their child is scared and frightened and that father's picking them up in the arms and saying, I've got you and no one's going to threaten you. No one's going to take you away from me. And Jesus saying to us, just hold on. Put your arms around my neck and trust me. Bury your head into my neck. Let me hold you. Let me comfort you. Let me be what you need. Let me be your only provider. Let me be your only comfort. Let me be the only one you turn to and rely on and trust. Don't try to manipulate me. Rest in me. Hold on. So the question we have for us today, are we holding on to Jesus? It's not a question meant to induce guilt. It's a question meant to invite us in. Because you see, it's not whether or not we hold on to Jesus, but the fact that Jesus is already holding on to us that allows us to hold on to him. It's that Jesus has entered into the worst that the world has to offer us. He's, he's entered into death itself the greatest threat against us, and he's overcome it. And because he's done that, we are sure that he's holding on to us and that we can trust him enough to throw both our arms around his neck and hold on to him. He's not asking us for blind trust. He's asking for us to trust him because he's already shown himself to be faithful. Paul speaks to this in his letter to the Romans 
And in this letter earlier in this chapter, he started off by saying, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're already wrapped into him. His grace already abounds and it's already been given out to us. But we're going to face some tough times and we're going to face some struggles and, and things are difficult and Paul acknowledges that. And then he comes to this point, he says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God's on our side, who, who, can, who can threaten us? What can tear us apart from God, essentially? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? We don't need to chase after the other gods to provide us pleasure. We don't need to chase after the other gods to provide us economic security. We don't need to chase after the other gods to make sure that we get along with everybody else. God is providing for us. God has given us his own son and promises us to give us all things that we need in him, that everything we need will be found in him. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. In a moment, we're going to go to the table. God's generous banquet table that he invites us to. And we're going to be invited to sit around that table and to, to take the bread and the cup and, and to have our hearts and our faith nourished in him. And as we taste that bread and cup, it is an invitation from God himself where he says to us, trust me, I've got you. Trust me, I'm holding on to you. Trust me, I'm not going to let you go. Trust me, I know what you need and I will provide for you. I have removed your sins from you. I have removed the threat of death from overcoming you. I got you. Paul finishes out the chapter this way. And it's a good place for us to end as we head to the table. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. We admit, Lord, we too are an anxious people. We are people who want to appease others around us so that we don't experience threat. The threat of violence, the threat of war, the threat of failure, the threat of exclusion, the threat of an uncertain future. We, we have a habit of turning to other gods to fulfill us, to make us feel safe, to make us feel okay, to make us feel loved. We confess that before you. We ask that you refine our hearts. 
that you see the impurities in them and, and you take them out of us so that we might have pure hearts before you that are full of trust and love and that like little children, we might throw our arms around your neck in full trust that you've got us. Hold on to us, Lord. Even as you have already done in your Son, Jesus Christ, even as you are doing now through your Spirit, hold on to us. We might know your love, and then we might believe you. In Jesus' name, amen. Invite us to stand.